Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. It may seem like Matume is a man of musical contrasts. After all, he's responsible for great spiritual jazz and R&B slow jams. But to hear him tell it, working with Miles Davis on some of the trumpet icon's most out-there records, and writing the slow-funk anthem Juicy Fruit, all comes from the same place. In this 2014 interview with Jeff Chairman Mao, Matume takes stock of his remarkable and inspiring career. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after this lecture. But for now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Won't you please welcome Mr. James Mtume. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, it's really a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to address you know, the participants. And it's good to see you again. It's great to see you as well. Now, I mentioned you've worn many hats over your career. I wonder if you, of all those different roles, you know, do you view yourself as any one more so than the others? No, no, no. I, I, actually, I don't. That's a great question. If you were to ask me which one did I get the most out of or felt the most uh, joy from, it would be composing for television and film. You know, because it's just, you know, you're alone, you're in the basement. And you've got to create the backdrop of a scene. Mm-hmm. And the, the trick in scoring is to never let the music get in the way of the dialogue. So it becomes more of a wallpaper, mm-hmm. or in that case, soundpaper. Right. So uh, when I was at, had the opportunity to do, do an urban show called New York Undercover, to compose for that um, gave me great joy because it was a chance for me to put an urban sound on television. It had never been done like that, right, right. you know. So, you know. Well, let's go back a little ways. Um, you are from a musical family. Uh, where did you grow up, and can you describe you know, your musical environment coming up? Yes. Um, I was born and raised in South Philadelphia. Uh, my biological father is Jimmy Heath from the Heath uh, Brothers, the famous jazz, uh, Percy and, and Tootie Heath. But the, ma- the father that raised me was uh, James Hengates Foreman, who was uh, also a, a very famous, in the Philadelphia area, uh, a pianist. He was a jazz pianist. So at nine and 10 years old, I'm, I'm at the house you know, quite often, you know, maybe at dinner, there's Dizzy Gillespie, there's Thelonious Monk, there's John Coltrane. Now, I'm not going to sit here and, and lie to y'all like, oh, I, I knew how deep that was, you know? <laughs> I mean, this shit, I'm nine, you know what I mean? But I did know there was something very, very special. And uh, Lalo Schifrin would come by a lot. Uh, Sonny Stitt would stay at the house when he was working in Philly. So I had a chance to be around that. And uh, I always say my, my, my front ground is jazz. It's not background, it's front ground. Yeah. And out of that, I moved into other forms and uh, variations in music. But uh, I grew up, you know, in jazz. Like, I, I was going to the clubs at 14, you know, putting a little mascara, you know. But I couldn't get no drinks, but, you know, I was sneaking in. I mean, this, this is true talk. This is, this is Red Bull, right? Uh, <laughs> so, but I also grew up with R&B. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, I'm listening to Marvin Gaye, and maybe that weekend I'm going to hear Youssef Latif, you know what I mean, at Peps, you know, and, 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 and I grew up with both. The, the first time I realized my musical tastes were a little different than the rest of the kids, I remember it was, it was in sixth grade, and everybody had to bring two records. I brought 
Frankie Lyman, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, and then I brought Miles Davis. The kids, everybody was, they was really getting off with Frankie Lyman. But when they put Miles on, it was like Dr. Death had come in the room, you know? And then it was that I realized jazz was an acquired taste mm -hmm. and that uh, I was very fortunate to have been born in that environment. To have, it's almost like having both worlds to draw from. So when did you start playing yourself? Well, like I said, my, my, my dad, Ken Gates, was, was a jazz pianist. Now remember, at that time, you know, McCoy Tyner was coming around the house right. taking lessons from my old man and um, uh, Lee Morgan. Wow. I remember Lee Morgan very well. So the, the piano was always there. So, you know, I just naturally started playing and I found out I could basically play with anything I heard. Yeah. You know, not anything, of course. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't dealing with Beethoven, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, basically I could figure out chords. Right. So I had an ear and um, I just started playing around the house. And my mother was also a big inspiration. She was, uh, she, you know, she was very much into all the jazz singers, you know, uh, Lady Day, and she could actually sing very well. And, uh, you know, my, 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 Dinah Washington was my sister's godmother, and we would go, like, on a couple of weeks each summer, stay up at her crib, so there was always music around. So that's, I started playing like that, you know. And then uh, my uncle Kumba Tutti bought me a, a kunga, and that opened me up for the percussion. So the piano, playing the piano, and also playing percussion, you know, harmony and rhythm was the same thing to me. Yeah, so they're actually quite similar in a yes, lot of well, ways. Yes, well, yeah, the piano is a percussive instrument. Mm -hmm. Now, you left Philadelphia not, not to pursue music, though. No. So what were you doing? Um, I had this horrible revelation my father induced me to. You know, I, when I was growing up, I just knew... The greatest basketball player back then was a guy named Elgin Baylor. You know, he was the, the forerunner to, you know, uh, Miles and MJ and Dr. J. But I just knew I was going, there was no way I wasn't going to get a basketball scholarship. And then one day he came and I was down in the basement in my sanctuary practice, practicing. And he said, you know, man, you ain't going to be tall. And it was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so you're going to have to figure out how you're going to go to college. So... I was a swimmer, actually. I got to college on a, a, a swimming scholarship. You know, as of now, there's not many black swimmers, so imagine what that was back then. You're talking about, you know, early 60s. You know, I had those experiences of uh, going to a, a swimming meet and watching all the, uh, when I walked in, all the, uh, the umpires run into a corner to decide if I could get in the water. I was at the one, I remember a meet that some guys were throwing matches fire on me. So... You know, you develop a backbone. So I had a political consciousness. And plus, you know, my parents were very much involved in the civil rights movement. So I ended up going to California on a swimming scholarship and ended up uh, dealing with, the, you know, black activism during the 60s. Right. So where did you wind up going to school? Pasadena City College. Okay. So near Los Angeles. Now, what was going on in Los Angeles as far as activism at that well, time? Well, if you remember, I went, I went out uh, in 66. Summer of 66. So anybody trying to figure it out, I'm, I'm 67. So some of this stuff goes way back before a lot of y'all were even thought about. And the Watts Revolt had happened. But you have to understand, in the country at that time, it was activism all across the board. You had the young white students who were dealing with the war. You had the Black Panthers. I was with an organization called Us Organization that was a cultural organization. Well, we created something called Kwanzaa that's still celebrated today. But the country, there was a different temperature in the country. And, and activism was kind of, and, and we were all come, pretty much coming out of a college movement. Right. 
So obviously I, I migrated to that. And um, that's, you know, and then one thing fell apart. The organization fell apart. And then I was asked to come back to Newark, New Jersey by a gentleman named, a dear friend of mine who just passed, Imam Baraka. And uh, to, he asked me to come back to help on the uh, Ken Gibson campaign, which was the first black mayor elected on the East Coast. So I came back for that. And um, then I met this guy named Miles Davis, and the rest was, you know, it was over. It was about the music. Right. Yeah, you, but you did get into the music and work on the music previous to joining Miles oh, yes. as well. Oh, yes, yes. And you were, you were still playing piano or playing percussion at that point? Yeah, both. I play, right. always played both. Um, now, when did you become known professionally, well, I guess beyond professionally, as in M2 Man? Um, I purposely never wanted the connection with the Heath name. Not, not because though I had a problem with my bloodline. Mm-hmm. It was that I always had this thing about siblings or children who were born of, of, of parents or one of the parents is famous in one field or another. And I never wanted to feel like I, I didn't want to walk in anybody's shoes. I wanted my own sandals. So I usually kept that out. Of, even when I signed with Epic, they were like, this is a great, you know, for the PR. I said, no, no. I want people to know me for what I accomplished. Then they can make the connection. But I would say it, it started getting known when I went back to New York. And this is a really interesting story. It's, it's, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. Every young musician fantasizes about who they wanted to play with. And it's an honest truth. I had three names I wanted to play with, and it was in this order. First was McCoy Tyner. Second was Freddie Hubbard. Third was Miles Davis, none of whom I'd even met. I get to New York. Two weeks as I'm in New York, I get a call. McCoy Tyner was getting ready to record next week, and he wanted to know if you can do the album. Number one, that was number one on the list. Number two, Freddie Hubbard calls. I work with him. And while I was working with Freddie Hubbard at a place called the, uh, the Vanguard in New York, Miles Davis came to hear me. I didn't see him, uh, but he sat in the corner, and everybody told me he was there. And uh, two weeks after that, I got a call, mm. you know, Miles Davis. He said, man, what you doing for the next nine months? <laughs> he said, he said we're going we to go to Europe. And I said, I'm down. Wow. Wow. And that's, uh, so I guess it was around that time. Yeah. And... and- with Herbie Hancock, this is kind of as a side note, out of curiosity. He had that the Mwandishi oh, group. Yes. Now, was it true that you were, you gave the names to yes, all the players I, yeah, in that group? Yeah, um, Herbie uh, and the group were very interested in in, in culture and Swahili. So uh, you know, when they every time they came to town, I would go hear them. And then one day, they just uh, you know just gave them the names. They wanted names to translate uh, for the group, and Mwandishi was his name. It means the writer. And all the other players and all had, the other players, yeah, took had all the names, names as well. Yeah. Okay, so back to Miles. So Miles says, come join me in the group. What was your first impression of Miles? Shit, I mean, <laughs> I, I, Miles and I had a very, 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 very close relationship. As a matter of fact, in his autobiography, he talks about how he loved me like a son. And um, we would talk because we're both insomniacs. You know, I usually, I'm not, I don't go to sleep till three, four in the morning, even now, you know. And we would talk music. Mm-hmm. And we would talk about concepts. Uh, I, would, I would call that my introduction to Zen. You know, learning what you don't play sometimes is more important than what you play. Sometimes leave something out. Don't finish the statement. You know, like I said, you know, there's no such thing as a mistake if you learn something. 
Okay? And, and these lessons, you know, you know, silence is sound because it's air. You know what I mean? And, and you learn that and you apply that to understanding melody. You begin to understand, okay, out of these 10 notes I could use, what's the two that implies the other eight? It's the, it's, it's the appreciation for abbreviation. Most people, musically, they talk in paragraphs. Learn how to talk in quotations. Take your music and reduce it to its highest goal. You know, it's like people who talk too much, you know. You know what I mean? It's just too many notes. Right. You know, why? At a certain point, I can't digest all that anyway. So what's the ones that really matter? Especially your songwriters. The secret to songs is melody. Everything else is under that. But at the end of the day, that's the tip of your iceberg. Mm -hmm. You got too many notes. If I can't hum your song, it ain't a hit. Everything is a nursery rhyme at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But you got to make it your nursery rhyme. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the music you guys were making in the Miles Davis group at that time? Improvisational funk using electronics in a way that it had never been used. And I'm talking about, I joined the band in 71. We recorded an album in 72 that really set the stage for a whole new musical movement. But the critics, who were too arrogant to ask what we were doing, uh, decided to write about something they didn't even know. They didn't even have a vocabulary. I always say it's like inviting Kool-Aid drinkers to a wine tasting contest. They didn't even have the palate. But they were writing about it. Taking this very complex musical idea and pushing the music, pressing the boundaries. To me, that's always what it was about, pressing the boundaries. That's one of the things I find, I'm not going to say boring about a lot of contemporary music, but certainly repetitious. People are scared to take chances. You don't move music by standing still. You got to move music by believing in what you're doing and not being afraid of criticism, mm -hmm. you know, and trying something. You know, there's an old African proverb that says, to stumble is not to fall. It's really just to move forward faster. Some of y'all will get that later, but you understand? <laughs> you know, you don't really fall. You stumble, but that's pushing it. It's not enough push. That's why I'm so happy to, to, to see what you guys are doing here. This is, this is very important. You have an opportunity to really hone your craft and share it with other people who are on the same creative level. That's very important. What's the most Miles Davis thing that you recall about Miles Davis and, and working within that? Either from maybe uh, just what were rehearsals like? I mean, you know. No, 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 no. No rehearsals. <laughs> no, no, and, and, and there was a reason. And the reason I'm, I, I responded like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like one of the young guns and I'm, talk, I'm one of them guys, man, we got to rehearse, we got to rehearse. So he pulled me to the side. I mean, when I say no rehearsals, I think maybe during that entire five years, maybe we rehearsed three times. Um, three times? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Miles pulled me to the side and said, look, I mean, he used much harsher language. But, you know, it was in a very fatherly way. He said, look, he said, man, I pay you to rehearse on stage. It took me a minute to understand that. He said, I don't want to cook this. I don't want to ever overcook the meal. And I had to think about that, and then I understood what he was saying. Every night, I want this to be an adventure. He said, because if you start rehearsing this, now for this, for what we were doing, because every night, you know, you don't know where you're going, so your musical antenna always had to be really sharp. But he wanted an adventure every night. Yeah. So you start rehearsing, you start finding yourself playing certain patterns that you know work. 
It's like a singer who can sing high notes. Okay, I'm going to get them right here. Oh, and everybody goes, oh, you know. You, you don't want preconditioned thoughts in your head. Was that the same with the recording process as well? Yeah. yeah. You never knew when you were going to record. He didn't like to let you know. You get a call the day before the recording. Sometimes I remember we came in one session and he had some music written out and then he had it in colors, you know, B flat minus seven and that's in blue. And, you know, C sharp something and that's in yellow and orange. So, you know, you know it was like, you know you, you know you with somebody who's really there, you know, so you don't really want to feel square and ask. You know what I mean? Like, you, if I'm here, then he obviously thinks, we're hip enough. So we kind of figured those colors represented feelings. So what is blue to you? That would determine the inversion of the chord. Or rhythmically, how would you interpret red? Right. And that's, I mean, like I said, Zen stuff, man. I'll tell you one, one experience that was one of the, the most overwhelming experiences I ever had. We were playing in Lebanon. And it was during the time of the Israeli and, and, and the Lebanese were, were, were having physical struggles. I mean, it was war. And when we played, the uh, president's son came to hear us. So we're surrounded by about 100, 200 soldiers, machine guns and everything, because, you know, and you know that took the music somewhere. So after we finished, we're in the dressing room. It was like a tent. And all of a sudden, we hear this, you know, and all these guns cocking. And it's I'm like, what? We're going to get it here like this? And this guy runs through, this Arab cat runs through. He breaks through, and he falls at Miles' feet. Miles is sitting in a chair, and he starts crying. And this is the honest truth. He says, now I can die. And like we look like, he said, man, I never thought I'd live to see you. He said, your music saved my life. I was going through some difficult periods, and your music. And, you know, we all trying to be hard, but everybody started getting that little water, you know. And then I looked at Miles, and he teared up. But... It was showing me that you never know who your music's touching, and you never know the effect you're having on people. Mm -hmm. To hear somebody fall at somebody's feet and say that, it made me respect what we were doing and what all musicians do even more, because it was a direct connection with what, how, how music affects people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really it was an overwhelming experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, there was also a lot of, not just running through a take from start to finish with Miles, it was editing. Is that something that you were aware was going on at the time when you're there? I mean, um, sort of like taking all these different pieces and just putting them together to make it something new. I, I was aware, but I was not aware to the extent that that was being done by the producer, uh, Teo Macero, right. who is himself was a great saxophone player. And uh, then I found out that they were doing things like, Back then, we're talking about 72, 73, Miles would take uh, T.O. some cassette tapes, and that would be edited into some of those songs. If you're listening to On the Corner, some of those are, are a combination of four takes, and you never hear any difference. It's seamless. It's a seamless transition. But he was a genius in, in taking things and migrating them into other things. Just a piece pieces here right. Now in the band with Miles is a guitarist yeah. by the name of Reggie Lucas. Right, my partner when we started out, yeah. So what happened how did the Miles 
band come to an end, and what did that lead to? Well, as most things, like marriage, it came to an end, you know. <laughs> Which story do you want to pick? It's like, we were on tour with Herbie Hancock, who had the, the, his big record, uh, Headhunters. Headhunters, right, thank you. And Miles got sick, and um, we only did like two concerts, two shows together. So at that time, nobody was clear about when he was going to come back. And it ended up being, what, five years? You know, mm -hmm. so I think we all made the right decision, you know. <laughs> and um, so Reggie and I had been experimenting with writing. And um, I joined Roberta Flack. Roberta had been calling. She was a big fan of Miles's, and she was, you know, also appreciated my playing very much. So I was confronted with two offers, and I had to make a decision. It was Weather Report and Roberta. Wow. So I said, well, Weather Report came from what I came from. I said, I want to do something different. So I decided to go with uh, Roberta, and it was the best decision. So while I'm with Roberta Flack, she called me and said she needed a guitarist. At that time, Reggie was living in Chicago. I told him, I said, I know one. So Reggie came and joined. So to make a long story short, we're in the middle of uh, recording this album called Blue Lights in the Basement. And uh, we took a dinner break. I was kind of bored anyway. So everybody left to go to dinner. So. I had been messing around with this melody, so I told Reggie to stay, and, and I, I sat down at the piano. So I, it was like, -de 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 -de. it was something called "A Closer I Get to You." So when everybody came back, I gave them their parts, and I just wanted to put it on the tape. So we, we're listening back. Roberta comes back. She says, "What's that?" I said, "The Closer I Get to You." It was no such song. I just felt a moment. You know what I mean? She said, "Can I record it?" Sure. She said, you got the lyrics? I said, oh, no, I left them at home. That's beautiful. <laughs> I just did the thing. Now, you know, but you know, when you feel, hey, man, this might, this might be a shot. Yeah. So we recorded it. I told her I could get the lyrics back to her you know, in the morning. Yeah. So I wrote the lyrics in the back of the car on the way back to the house. Obviously, I wasn't driving. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, that would have been even more yeah, impressive. Yeah. I got it to her, and uh, I suggested that she do it a duet with Donny Hathaway. They hadn't done anything in a long time. And um, that record came out. We did about, I think, about five million units. So right. that's when my writing career started in, in pop music. Okay. You and Reggie become a production songwriting team. And what was, what was the sound that you guys were going for together? Well, what had happened, when we first hooked up, we started actually messing around writing when I was with Miles. Mm -hmm. I was doing more, more lyrics and uh, Melody, Reggie was doing the music. When Reggie moved to Chicago, that's when I said, okay, the closest is the first example. This is where I want to take it. So I'm doing, you know, constructing where, where we're going, you know, with the, sound, the actual sound. And what I wanted to do was, was, was develop a sound. Again, I come from the belief, knowing who you are and having your own signature is the most important thing to do as an artist. Sounding like somebody is, is, you should be slapped in your face, okay? You know, there's, there's the three stages I could talk about, the creative, the creative uh, sequence. The first stage is imitation. I don't care who you are, where you come from, I don't care if you're an artist, poet, I mean musician, poet, you know, painter, sculptor, there's somebody that you see and you say, damn, I want to do it just like that. So you pretty much imitate, that's your first, that's your first guide. Then somewhere along there, you develop uh, what I call a passage to emulation. Now, what, what do I mean by that? You still have that other person, 
you know, that is your main influence, but you're starting to find a little bit of yourself. And if you're fortunate enough, you go to the third stage, innovation. That's when you establish who you are. And that's a result of all those things that go through your funnel. So I wanted to find it, put a, a, a rhythm section together that was, you know, created for the specific purposes of going after a sound. What's the key to maintaining a good partnership musically, you know, with somebody? Creatively? Success. <laughs> you know, it's an old saying, success needs no explanation, failure can never be explained. You know, you don't stay with something but so long if it's a failure. So if you're rolling, you, you stay with it as long as... You know, it's, it's feeding you. And I don't just mean economically. I mean, it's feeding you. And all partnerships usually end with you're no longer nourished by what you, the, the music that you're producing. Mm -hmm. So you got to go out and, and, and go to the next level. Mm -hmm. What's your strategy with dealing with vocalists? Do you have a, a, a go-to sort of philosophy um, that you adhere to that, that works? Or is it a case-by-case -case basis? Well, I, I think one of the keys that you need to establish is what kind of voice you pull to it. What, 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 which one are you drawing? I've always been closer to the female voice. Mm -hmm. I feel that. An important thing to understand with a vocalist, don't overproduce the vocalist. Be, be a guide, because a lot of times a singer can get stuck. They don't know where to go. Be there for that. But you really got to know what you're doing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you're guiding somebody, but don't get in the way of an artist because when an artist is free to do what they do best, that's when you get the best performance. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to, to every line, no, the, the thing is, all right, here's the line, and sometimes you have to adjust. Maybe the melody you had in your head doesn't work with that artist. Right. You heard it perfectly when you're doing it, but you're not the recording artist. So if they fit, at the end of the day, to answer your question, what you go for, what feels right. Because sometimes what you wrote is not going to work when you record it. I can't tell you how many songs I thought were great. <laughs> you know, and then the next day you record it, you say, what, am I kidding? You know, but don't get in the way of your artist. Be there to, to shape and, and, and direct where they're going. You know, a lot of times people, you know, they're frustrated artists themselves. So, you know, sing it like this. Well, no, it don't work like that. Let them be free. Let them be free. What are your uh, recollections of working with Donny Hathaway and Phyllis Hyman? Um, two supremely talented, um, but obviously tortured artists. It's very interesting you bring that up because, as a matter of fact, as soon as I get back to New York, um, there's a, a, a cat from Holland who's doing a documentary on Donny. And uh, he's in New York right now, and I'm going to you know, put my part on it. That's very heavy for me because the last two songs Donny Hathaway ever sang were two songs that I did. The Closer and another song called Back, Back Together Again, as a matter of fact. That's the night he died. It's a little, you know, I know he killed himself that night, you know. Um, we recorded the song and it was a Saturday night and uh, he had a breakdown in the studio. And... Um, as a result, he couldn't continue. So I said, it's cool, Donnie, don't worry. We'll finish it Monday. And about 5 o'clock in the morning, which would have been Sunday morning, my phone is ringing. Now, you know, when it's early like that, you know, it's just, that's weird, you know, because I picked it up. And it was someone crying. And I said, who's this? And she said, it's Roberta. 
She said, Mtume, uh, Donnie's dead. So it, it's, um, it's strange every time I hear back together again because I'm both proud that he's, he's such a great artist and that you had the opportunity for him to do a couple of your songs. But, uh, you know, it, Donnie was, was troubled, as, as was Phyllis Hyman. Donnie didn't leave a, uh, a note. Phyllis did leave a note. And a dear friend of mine, uh, Kenny Gamble, Gamble and Huff, he called me and when he had the, the note. And um, he read it to me. And um, she was really troubled with um, new artists coming along. And she felt, I mean, if you can imagine this, she felt she was too old. To, to, and I'm like, one of the greatest voices ever. But, you know, people have their own insecurities. And... Um, you know, she ultimately took her life while she was in the middle of a, a week of performances at the uh, Apollo Theater with the Whispers. Wow. Don't you have other recollections of working with Phyllis, oh, though? Well, what kind of stands out? First of all, the voices. I always say everything is about the voice. Phyllis had one of the most interesting tones for a female. She had a low register that just ran through you. And uh, I enjoyed it because she, you know... She cussed like I did. She was a sailor, you know, you know. F you. I said, yeah, F you too. And um, there's a, there was a, there's a, a section on one of the songs, You Know How to Love Me, where she sings this long note, and I had to do it over and over till it was right. So right after that, she said, F you. I said, well, okay, cool. So she strolls out. I said, let's take a dinner break. So while she goes out, I have one of the cats uh, go out and get a, a dozen roses, time around the microphone. She comes back. I said, okay, we ready? She said, yeah. She walks out. I had the lights out in, in the uh, recording uh, where my microphone was. I put the lights on. She's standing in front of Roses, and she broke down crying. I mean, that's the kind of sensitivity it was. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and uh, I just loved her. I loved her, man. Phyllis was great. Yeah. Is it tough to resolve these kind of conflicts in the studio? I mean, everybody here is working together and yeah. in close proximity. I've never had... Uh, Thou speakest too soon. <laughs> I, I had one bad, one bad experience. You know, the studio is where you don't, you, leave, you check your ego at the door. Mm -hmm. That means for the producers and the artists. And I had one bad, I'm not even going to mention their name because, you know, it'll probably make me mad again. But uh, he was a drag, but okay. just one. All right. So that was the only un unresolvable situation. Right. Right. But, but I quit. I quit. Okay. Yeah. But everything, hopefully everything is resolved. Oh, I know. I mean, that's, that's the happiest place in the world to be, yeah. in the studio. The one thing, I, I, I never work, I, I, if I'm working in the studio, I never allow guests. The artist guests or my personal guests. Anybody, they have to wait outside. Because if an artist is singing, she's looking, you know, from that room, look into the control room, and if you got these people singing, it turns into a performance. You see, you can't help it. If, if I'm singing... It's a performance because we've made a connection. So you take that out and everything is here. It's like being under a microscope. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt you get the best performance when there's no audience. We're just in there, just me and the engineer. And that's how I've always worked. Okay. Okay. So then, everybody has their own way. Right. So then can you, you know, as a sort of a, a thing when the other sessions weren't happening, what did you envision for the band m me that was different from what you were doing on these productions? Well, like I said, the first two albums were just, hey, let's do an album. You know, we had this deal. 
I had to fill it. I had to, I had to de- deliver an album. I didn't take the band serious until I, as I talked earlier, when I had that that moment, I had to confront. I was doing the same thing, mm-hmm. and at that time, I decided I wouldn't produce anybody else. I didn't produce anybody. I said, I'm gonna take a year, put another band together, find a studio, because the studio is the other musician. The studio is a sound, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and an engineer, and I took off a year. I only worked in one room in New Jersey, a place called Ears. And um, that was the Juicy Fruit album. And I didn't do anything else. And that's when I found out what my vision was for the band. Mm-hmm. I really didn't, I didn't have a vision. I had a, just a reason to fill a contract. Right. But on that album, I said, no, we're going to do this. I didn't think, like, I'm going to change the direction. But I said, I want to do something where it's a new sound. Yeah. And again, like you said, not radical, but it was definitely a departure from everything else that was out there. Right. So I take the record to Epic. They're into, we can't put this out. <laughs> uh, I'm like, why? They said, it's too slow, uh, because they were dealing with uh, beats per minute. I don't know where, who came up with that madness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, beats per minute, it's like, I said, man, I write from my heart, not from my head. And they said, well, it's too slow, but the other thing, you know, it's risque. Now, you got to take yourself back. This is 1983. That's like, like a virgin now. I mean, you know, but with some of the stuff that's on records now, you know. But at that time, they didn't want to put it out. So this is what they did. This was their negotiation with me. Um, all right, we, okay, we put it out since you were insisting. But we're not gonna release it for daytime play. So it was only initially released for night after 12 o'clock formats. After one week, they were getting so many calls, you know, from around the country. They said, uh, and the report they kept getting was, it's probably the first record that anybody remembered where you knew the song by the beat. Before any, as soon as you hear it, so obviously they did finally have to acquiesce you know, to getting that money, you know, that's what, it wasn't like they loved it, they hated it, but, uh, you know, money heals all things. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, obviously I became one of their favorite, you know, but uh, that, that was that story. So when I hear that line, and, oh, also I got sued, I forgot, uh, by Juicy Fruit Gum, Wrigley's. Right, so, so what happened so this is, this is, this is, keep this right here, I, don't let that out of the room. So I get called. I get called in, I have to take a deposition, right? So I roll in, I forgot, some big, huge, humongous law firm in New York. And I, I go in, so I'm this black guy, I walk in, I mean, it's one of the longest tables I'd ever seen, with all these elderly white guys sitting around, and I gotta, I'm taking a deposition. So it finally gets down to, you know, I knew it was gonna, it was, ultimately it's gonna come to this. Well, uh, Mr. Matumi, what do you mean by you can lick me everywhere. So I just, I knew I had them then, you know. So I rolled back. Well, I said, obviously it's not about gum. <laughs> I said, it's about oral sex. And you should have seen the looks that came. I don't think anybody in that room was under 70. You know what I mean? It was just, <laughs> but that, that's the great story I have. I don't think I've ever told it publicly. Yeah, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean by you can lick? I mean, what kind of question is that, first of all? <laughs> So that, that's why I laughed, y'all, but go ahead. So how did the beat come to being then? 
what yeah. happened, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I was working, we, we were just dedicated to this album. So we had finished one of the sessions and I, you know, it was about two in the morning. Everybody left, but I, I had this thing in my head. So I sat down and the Lynn drum had kind of, kind of just came out and it wasn't really being used that much in R&B. So I just sat down and I said, doom, take it, doom, kick on. And I said, that feels interesting. So I laid it. I didn't quantize it. That's why it's slightly off. So it has more of a human thing to it. Because sometimes when you quantize, to me, something being exact is not cool. Because you don't, the humanity is sucked out. So I recorded like that. I called everybody back to the studio. So the guys get back at about 3 in the morning. We laid the track. Tawatha was on tour with Roxy Music. She was in Europe. She had two days off, flew her back. We recorded. I'm, record, I'm writing the lyrics as she's recording them and got her back on a plane she, so she could, you know, meet Roxy Music and finish. And, um, you know, that's how that went. So um, how, how did you take to drum machine hardware as a percussionist yourself? Um, mm. You know... I guess this is what's even more interesting as a record for you personally is, okay, the drum machine yeah. is the thing that's pushing this record through. And is that, um, you know, counterintuitive for you as a musician because you're used to doing it yourself with your own hands? No, not at all. Again, you know, be like water. That was the shape that I was pouring in. You know, I'm not, I'm not threatened by technology. I welcome it. I digest it, you know, but I also try to humanize it. You know, when you just depend on technology, but you have no musical understanding, you know, that's the first thing you lean on is making everything perfect. You know, it's like, I can do this all day. The trick is, do I know how to do that? To make it lean, to curve the thing. You know, it's like, it's a combination of uh, intuition, intellect, and technique. You gotta know what those things are. You know, but if you're just sitting at a machine and don't know those other intricacies of, of what it is to deal with music or any art form, you know, so yeah, no, I'm not threatened by technology. If that was the case, I wouldn't use lights. <laughs> well, that was always the, the, the counter argument to, you know, the was, radical Miles Davis music as well, right? Because right? uh, the critics were like, why are you playing this dissonant electric music? Mm -hmm. Why isn't Miles playing? acoustic music because that's where he was and that bridge was already burned you see the people sometimes people are really offended when you move on it's like a relationship how dare you <laughs> you know you moved on but if you don't if you if you don't follow your instinct and your intuition then you never know what the joy you'll, you'll never experience the joy of really being creative because you'll be stuck in that quicksand Scared to do something different. And the least of all, I don't care what anybody thinks. If I think it's cool, try it. Right. That doesn't mean you don't listen to other opinions. I mean, then that's arrogance. But I mean, like I said, too much now, it's like branding. You know, people don't talk about the music somebody's creating. They talk about their brand. And somebody suffers when that happens. And who suffers more often than not is the listener and the fan. Because you're going to get the same bullshit in a different cup, in a different package. 
oh, but because that's so-and-so, it must be good. Well, no. Is it good based on the fact that it's good? So you, you see a lot of stuff, people put out the same album 12 times over and everybody's, oh, the new so-and-so, oh, it's great. Why? You're scared to have an opinion because some of the stuff is really bad. Some of it's really great, but you, you're branding. And like in boxing, it has happened in, I, I see this. Um, look, right after music, boxing is just my second favorite thing in the world. Mm -hmm. But I see fighters who, who don't fight to defend the title, they fight to protect it. So your brand, so you don't fight Pacquiao, okay? But then the whole boxing game gets turned because it's about the best meeting the best. And in the music, that's starting to happen. Branding. That's why you only have two or three major stars. When did that happen? Right. I knew 50 great female singers, 50 great saxophonists. Right. But what, what is this thing we got? One or two of this, one or two of that. Mm -hmm. When did that happen? Branding is a dangerous thing because it puts brakes on the creative process because you know you can sell by just putting it out because your name. No, you have to earn the right for people to love your music. Now, sampling became something that emerged as a very important part of hip-hop in the mid and late 80s. Yes. And you became a part of the conversation about the ethics of sampling. Um, what was your stance at the time, and how did you get pulled into that conversation? Okay, and I'm glad you brought that up, because I can clear that up right on Red Bull. It was a misconception. What happened was I was doing a radio show and it was called Year in Review on KISS FM in New York. And we were talking about the events that happened, you know, it's like the week before New Year's Day or something. So I said the most turnabout thing that I heard, I was driving in the car, and this has only happened to me a few times in my life, that something came on the radio and I had to pull over to the side. And it was a song called Bring the Noise. I had to hear... Who is this? And it was like Thelonious Monk. How can these guys be playing in all these different keys? Yeah. I'm thinking somebody's playing. Because, you know, again, I wasn't familiar, as most in my generation, with sampling. So on this radio show, I mentioned the deepest musical thing I'd heard was this group, Public Enemy, and this song, Bring the Noise. Then the subject came up about sampling. And I said, <clears throat> my problem with sampling was you can't take somebody's music and just rap on it and call it your song. No more than I could take a, a rapper's rap off and call it my song. In other words, pay the people who are providing the music. If you're not creating the music, somebody is. I mean, if, if James Brown got a penny for all the times he was sampled, he would have never had to perform again. He never got paid. So that was my point with sampling. You must pay if you're gonna use somebody's music why should they not get paid? So Daddy-O from uh, Stetsasonic, and we're great friends after this, but we was, we was going at it. He put out this record called Talking All That Jazz. That's about me. <laughs> I'm going to knock you out, you know. And uh, he completely misunderstood what I was saying. First of all, I said Public Enemy and uh, Hank Shockley and, and the Bomb Squad, that was some of the most creative stuff I'd ever heard. But but I'm but and as and, and as things happen, you know we both macho got, it got macho, so I felt myself out on a limb because nobody from my generation was saying nothing, 
And like I tell people, I don't mind being out on a limb. I'm just scared of saws. You know what I mean? So I, I defended it, but it got a little out of hand. But I was never against sampling. First of all, how hip, hypocritical could that be of me? I mean, as much as Juicy and stuff like that has been sampled. But I was saying, at that time, they were not paying the artists that they were, t- that they were sampling. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think it was right. And yeah, oh, you, does that you, clear that up? Yeah, you became sort of uh, known as the anti-sampling yeah, guy. And that's not true at all. It became that because nobody else, first of all, nobody else was speaking up. Yeah. See, there was a great divide that happened you know, in the black community generationally, when, when hip-hop was coming in, into full bloom. And it was a, a divide between the older generation and the younger. I've always sided with the younger because I felt my generation didn't leave a, a proper a, a, a blueprint and they were not supportive. You know? But sampling became almost this lightning rod. But that's, that's never, and I, and I became the target. But like I said, I'm a big boy. You know, my skin ain't thin. But my point was, you must pay the people whose music you're sampling. Right. And things had changed by the time Juicy oh, yeah. had come out right. then too. Right. So what was your impression of Juicy when you heard it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. First of all, I was honored that the next generation or an artist from the next generation, because it's about the music first and foremost, had it sold or not. I was just like, wow, they felt that, you know, they felt that good about it. I remember when I met Biggie, um, I, was doing, I was doing New York Undercover at the time, and I was up at Uptown having a meeting with Andre Harrell. And Andre said, oh, Puffy, need, once, uh, while you're here, Puffy needs to talk to you. I said, well, tell him, come on in. So Puffy came in. He said, you know, to me, I want you to, you know, I got this artist named Biggie. And he said, uh, I want to do Juicy Fruit. So I said, cool, this is how we do it. It ain't a long conversation. You get 50 cent, I get 50 cent. We did a page contract. Mm. Very simple. Yeah. If this is the music, and you the rapper, boom. Then he brought Big in, and we met. It was just, I mean, I, I, I took to him immediately, man. He was a sweetheart. And um, that's how that started, you know. So uh, I was honored, man. So how did the New York undercover scoring come into your life? That, t- that was an urban show about two cops, uh, one black and one uh, Latino, mm-hmm. you know, working in New York and uh, shot in New York, real New York themes. And um, I thought it would be a very inter- interesting challenge. Right. And uh, Andre Harrell, but more importantly, Dick Wolf, uh, Law and Order and all that, were the executive producers. Dick pretty much was running it. And, um, you know, I got the gig. It was a little difficult. Uh, when I brought the theme, Dick didn't like it because actually he never wanted me. I, Andre brought me. He wanted his yeah. man, right. Mike Post. And I understood that. Mike Post, yeah. yeah. Hill Street Blues. Yeah. Yeah, he So he said um, he didn't like it. And I said, okay. And then someone over at, at uh, Universal uh, Studios uh, Television Department said, send it over to us. Send us a dat. Oh, back, that's when we did had dats. And she called me back in about three hours and said, uh, oh, I'm Tume. I just took it to the head of uh, you know, Universal Studios. Uh, he said, he loves this. This is where we want to go. And he said, oh, and by the way, he said, tell him to me, thank you for Juicy Fruit. <laughs> so, again, you never know. This guy had to be 80. Right. You don't know who's listening to your music. Right. So, you know, I was, and like I said, I was able to put a sound on television that hadn't been heard. I think the most progressive sound before that was uh, Miami Vice, mm-hmm. you know. Now, we're talking mid-90s at this point. Yes. Um, the, in Toomey, the band has 
has stopped. Yes. So what, why did you stop the band? It was time. You always got to know what time it is. You know, you always got to know what time it is. And um, it could have gone on, but then I would have been right back at that point I told you. I never wanted to experience that again, sitting down trying to write some music and, and you're not doing it from here. You know, you're doing it because you have a formula that you know you, you, can, you can still reach X amount of people. And that's not the reason to create music. I never started like that, and I didn't want to finish like that. Everybody in that band went on to have very successful careers, especially with Tuathas. He works with everybody. I mean, uh, Stones, I mean, Dave Matthews, uh, Lenny Kravitz. Philip, my keyboard player, uh, is a principal at the school, runs the music department. So everybody went on to, to do something. So I felt good about that. But to continue doing something artistically and you're lying to yourself. And if you're lying to yourself, you know you lie. You can never lie to the people that believe in your music. Right. Now, you did step away from music. Oh, is yeah. that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. So why? I didn't feel it. And that's a delicate place to be. That doesn't mean that I won't, I mean, look, I might wake up tomorrow and feel it. You know, that thing doesn't leave you. It's more importantly, you leave it. The, th- the thing, or, the, or as Miles would say, the thing, the thing is always there. But you got to surrender something to bring something to that. And uh, what you surrender is, 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 there's no room for BS. You got to be committed to that, you know. And I've been, look, the other thing, you know, you and I talked about this. I mean, we sit up here talking, man. We went through damn near 40 years of music. Easy. And I played a lot of different types of music. So it's not like most people spent their, pretty much their, their, their career in one or two genres. I haven't done it all, no such thing. But I was a musician. Then I said I want to be a writer. Then I said I wanted to produce. Then I said I want to put a band together. Then I said I wanted to score. I think for me now, something I would love to do I would love to do Bonnie Raitt. Something just, that would, well, like all of it. It's been here or here. But I, 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 I'm not really touched by, I appreciate what I hear, but I would, I, I, I would need a challenge. Right. And you return to activism as well. Yes. Um, the last 20 years I spent on New York radio with a, on a political talk show called Open Line. I mean, all the politicians came through. I've traveled on several delegations to Cuba, Libya, Sudan, Ghana, South Africa, you know. Pretty much, that's, that's the water. <laughs> that's the shape. That, that, so when I say I left music, I actually just started pouring it into some other, mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think, as you and I were talking earlier, I think right now, the first interview I'd done of any serious consequence was with you and Red Bull and when my son hooked it up. And this is the second one. I haven't talked about music in 20 years. Not like this. And I feel at, the, at this age, I got a lot that I can give, you know, just, you know, experiences or, or you know, how this goes, how that goes. And it's, it's time for me to give that. Because, you know, once you split, that's it. Yeah. Uh, he was cool, but he didn't leave us no information. So, you know, like I always said, joke with people. They say, uh, Methuselah lived to be 900. I said, yeah, well, that, what else did he do? I mean, so, so he lived. What, what, what did he do? Oh, I don't know that. But I'm glad to be here, and uh, anything that I could do and be of help to about, about uh, you got it. I'm, I'm about giving this information to the next generation. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know 
if you thought there was a, through all the different facets of your career, the different phases, is there a thread that you see that connects them in some way? If there is any thematic fiber in my career, or that one thing you could point to, it goes back to what I said earlier. I never lied to the music, and the music never lied to me. And when you finish with a phase, move on. Move on. And uh, that's the only way you expand the music. And being open. Like, I've never been one of them old heads that was, uh, oh, that ain't nothing, you know, because it's new and you, and you don't understand it. Well, then learn it. Get, you know, understand. I've never been threatened by nothing, something new. I, that's what I live for. I live to be inspired by something I haven't heard. How else do you grow? That's why we got too many midgets. We got too many midgets in the world right now. They don't want to grow. And, you know, and, and uh, yeah, midget music, yeah. Yeah. Always be open to the next thing. I got an 11-year-old granddaughter. She might come up with something next year that I never heard. And you know what? I'm going to be right at the crib. I, how did you get that sound? Because I come out of jazz. And you have to understand, in jazz, everybody shared. That's the other thing. Everybody shared. I mean, I had a problem once with some rhythms, odd signature, odd time signatures. I called Max Roach a master. You don't have that now. I mean, people, these cats hold on like they got the secret to cancer. You know what I'm saying? Well, how'd you get that cymbal sound? Or what, did you, what chord did you play? You don't grow the music by doing this. You grow it by that. And if you, if you don't get anything from what I'm telling you, everything I arrived at, I arrived at because somebody showed me something that I could add to it. But you got to share. That's what I love about when you, you're taking us through those rooms, man. You guys are working together. You're sharing. It can't grow by itself. It grows with expanding the sphere of information. Damn, there it is. There it is. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the academy in Tokyo. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening.